and welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I'm your host. This week's episode, I was joined by Bob de Pascal and oh my word, he is just inspirational in just one word. So Bob is a passionate advocate of stewardship. He believes in taking care of the things that he's been blessed with and it's his life mission to help families in doing the same. And his perspective was really birthed from a battle with cancer when he was 18 and he grew up as an only child but it wasn't until he was an adult that he felt alone and having been on this journey of being at the edge of life led him to a unique view of life and that is vitality. So his unique purpose is to spread a message of vitality with people, with families and communities to nurture and foster a culture of growth and fulfillment. Um, This episode was just so touching, so inspiring, so perspective shifting. I encourage you to tune in with your favourite drink and soak in, soak in the wisdom that is, Bob Bob came here with the fullness of himself, um, with not just his triumphs, but also his trials. And honestly, I was left better for that conversation as a result. So enjoy and please share the love, share with a friend, with a family member or share on your social media. And you can tag me at Nikia Anani. Thank you. Welcome, Bob, to the Connected Generation. I'm so excited to have you today. Hi, Nikkei. Thanks for having me. I am excited as well. It's great to have you on my platform after being featured on yours. That was a really cool conversation we had. Um, Absolutely. Yes. So tell us more about you. I know today you're an advocate for stewardship, um, but tell us more about how did you get to where you are today, your life journey? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a deep question. I, I guess I will start as deep as we can go. I found out yesterday, late in the day, that it was National Cancer Survivors Day. I don't know if, if you knew that, but I didn't know mm. it. And I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually a cancer survivor myself. Wow. So I have, I have a, a bit of a story there if you want me to dive into it. If you're willing to, please. Oh, Thank you. Would, would love to. Would love to. And I, it's, it's just interesting. Yesterday, I just found that out yesterday, late, late in the day. And I was like, oh, I need to say something about this because I know a lot of people in my life know what, what I went through. So when mm-hmm. I went off to college, uh, university in 2001, I, I was 18 and I, I had grown up mostly in South Florida and I wanted to kind of get away from South Florida and do something a little bit different with my life. Just not that I didn't like it. I, I live back in South Florida now and I love it, but I wanted to try something different. So I went up to Hofstra University, which is in Long Island, New York, near New York City. And I went up about a month early because I was playing uh, American football there. And hmm. I, you have to go to training camp. And you're there before anyone gets on campus, pretty much. It's just you and maybe some other sports teams and, and people that are running. But it was pretty quiet. Not like these days where the universities have their students show up in the mm-hmm. summer before they're – it was pretty empty. But – we would be, you know, we would have to get up pretty early in the morning. And at, at one point, I, I thought I tweaked a, my my groin muscle, and that is, you don't realize <laughs> when you're an athlete how much you actually use that muscle in your leg there. Mm. And it was bothering me for almost a week, more than that, maybe ten days actually. And we would be up super early in the morning in the tr- in the training room trying to get 
trying to get treatment to, to get back on the field. And I was doing this exercise where picture a stool with three wheels. And mm-hmm. the exercise was as simple as me sitting on the stool and pushing myself across the room with no hands. I could only use my legs. Mm. And in high school, a training room is a small little room and there's maybe a couple people in it. When I got to college, there's like 50 people at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. There's all kinds of trainers and doctors and coaches. It was just crazy. And part of the exercise was pushing myself along and really dodging all the people. And I could barely do it because my, it hurt my leg so much. And it felt really strange. And at one point, the head trainer stood up on a box or something in the middle of the training room. And it was usually very, very loud. A lot of people making noises and just kind of getting music and just stuff to get yourself excited that early in the morning. Well, some for some reason, it got really quiet. <laughs> I don't know why. And he, and he like yelled at me across the room. And, and they called me Bobby at the time. So he was like, Bobby, why are you still in here? You need to be back practicing. And when you're an 18-year-old young boy and you think you're invincible and you have a little bit of an ego and head trainer stands up and tells you really calls you out for being a weakling (laughs) it's kind of embarrassing Mm -hmm. and anyway I told him but I said Rick listen something's wrong so we had a more private meeting and he sent me he sent me to the doctor and I went through a series of tests for another week or so and what was supposed to be my, my first college football game my parents were coming up to New York to, to come see it. Now we knew at this point that I wasn't going to be playing because I was injured, but I had mm-hmm. an appointment with a doc with my doctor to review one of my tests. And I had many at this point right after this happened. And my parents were actually flying up that day on a Thursday. They got out of the plane. They got into the car they were taking to my uncle's house, which is where we were going to meet. He still lived in New York. And I came out of the meeting and my doctors, my doctor sat me down and looked me in the eye and said, Bobby, you have cancer. God. And I was like, what? I mean, I'm 18. I'm invincible. I'm an athlete. Mm. I, I take care of mm. myself. So it's really, really challenging time. And then my mom calls right after that. And she's like, all right, we landed. We're on our way. How did the doctor's appointment go? And I had to tell her. I mean, I couldn't lie. I said, mom, the, the doctor says I, I'm cancerous. And oh, I, I could just tell on the other side of the phone how emotional she was. And I could hear my dad. My dad was yelling Susan, Susan, that's my mom's name. What, what's going on? And I could tell that he was upset and he knew, he knew something was wrong too. So we met back at my uncle's house and it was a very trying and emotional time. We, we, we shed a bunch of tears. We, we just didn't know mm-hmm. what to expect. Mm-hmm. So that was Thursday. Friday was a blur. I don't even remember what happened. The next week, we probably talked to the doctors and try to figure out what to do. Saturday, we were, it was Saturday morning and my uncle's best friend, I'll never forget this, Nikkei, came over the house and handed my parents his keys. We're in the kitchen of my uncle's house in New York there. And he hands the keys to my parents and said, Bob and Susan, you take my car. I can only imagine what you have to do or what you're going through. You can take my car for as long as you need it while you're going through this time. And my parents were blown away. They just did wow. not it was amazing stroke of generosity by this guy, Tim, who we had never met, even though he was my uncle's best friend, we didn't live near there. So we had actually never met him. And he left, he was there for maybe 15 minutes. And we were like, wow, that was such an amazing, you know, amazing offer. Well, the next couple of days go by, it's Monday morning. And my oncologist told me I should take college classes. 
because or at least one or two. I can't just drop all my classes because you you have to have something to do mentally while you're going through cancer treatment. Even though we didn't even know what my treatment was, he said, mm-hmm. still take some classes. I went to my first college class on Monday morning. I super simple, basic, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. Then we went to a bunch of doctor's appointments and we went home, got some sleep, went to my second college class Tuesday morning and I came out of the class and I needed to get something to eat. So I went over to the cafeteria. Now, if you remember those tube televisions, so not flat screens, but the tube televisions that like a cafeteria or, or a, a public place would kind of hang in the mm-hmm. corner of the ceiling. I'm sitting there eating my breakfast and I'm watching the news on that little small television and I can barely see it, but I'm watching the news and I saw a plane fly and hit the twin towers, one of the towers in New York. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. So I actually called my dad and and he was back at my uncle's house. And I said, Hey dad, are you watching the news? He goes, yeah, I saw a plane hit the twin towers or one of them. And then we're talking for like a minute and then bam, the second plane hits the other tower. And we're like, okay, there's something crazy going on. My, my dad's like, you better come back to my, your uncle's house. So I hopped in the car. I drove what would normally take me 15 minutes from Hofstra, where I went to school, to my uncle's house. It took me nine hours with the twin town, like the smoke in the distance. I could w- watch it. And I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism, which is later in the story. But I will never, ever again listen to nine straight hours of AM radio. (laughs) It was was unbelievable. So even though I'm trained in that, and and I even worked in radio for a while, that was a long time. So I I ran out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood, which was kind of crazy too. We pushed, I'll never forget this, we pushed the car into my uncle's driveway, and we went inside that same kitchen where my uncle's friend Tim gave my parents the keys to his car, and we just all looked at each other and like, is the world coming to an end? Like, what are we going to do? We couldn't get a hold of my uncle and my, my aunt was frantic and he was supposed to be flying into New York city that day because he had business in Denver the night before. And we, about five, five 30 in the evening, my, we got a call from my uncle and he, he was okay. So we were totally, we were relieved that he was okay, but we found out that Tim, his best friend was in the towers that morning and perished. And so it was in a matter of three or four days, my life was flipped, turned upside down, literally. And I could not believe what was going on. And so when you asked the question about my journey, that was a very short period of time in my life, but a very, very meaningful uh, and deeply personal time for me and my family. And so when I talk about being an advocate of stewardship, at that point Mm -hmm. in my life, I didn't realize it at the time. It took me a couple of years, and that's a that's a deeper uh, story, which I'm more than happy to talk about. But I, looking back on that time, I realized how valuable the things around me in my life were, and the people. Mm-hmm. And so, having gone through that, and then National Cancer Day yesterday, I thought of that, and I was I was really reminiscing about what I went through. And it's very very important for me to think about the things I have in my life. So, being a good steward is really about that taking care of the gifts and blessings and things that you have in your life and using them for using them well and using them for good causes. So it's extremely important to me uh, in order to do that. That's incredible. That's thank you firstly for um, coming through with your full self um, with the, the fullness of your journey 
because I'm I'm so sure it's it's thoroughly blessed me, and I'm sure it will bless so many others. Um, sharing something so such a difficult season of your life, can you elaborate a bit more about what you were just kind of alluding to? On um, you know, you've come to this point where you have a kind of renewed understanding of stewardship, and it's taking care of gifts and blessings and channeling, channeling those towards making a positive impact. Can you share more about that? Yes. I mentioned how it took me a couple of years to really get to that point. And let me make this clear. I believe stewardship is a journey. It's not something that you just flick a switch. It's hmm. not something that you do once and you check a box and you move on. It's a journey in life because different things come in and out of your life all the time. Things change. And it's very, very important to practice stewardship. Just like anything else, if you do it once, you're not going to be great at it. But if you practice it consistently, you'll get better. And then if you stop doing it, you'll lose some of those skills. So stewardship is absolutely a journey. What happened to me in, in that period of time is 20 years ago now, which is really incredible. But what happened to me at that point made me want to power through it made me want to be the best cancer patient I could possibly be. That's all I knew, whether it was working uh, doing my, during my studies or it was in the athletics, the sports I participated in, whatever it is in life, it was work as hard as you can and you can make it happen. And while mm -hmm. I think hard work and dedication is a valuable skill, I don't think it's the only skill. So I learned and it took me time to realize that it wasn't just me powering through being a cancer patient. I mean, the doctor told me when to, when to eat, when to drink, when to sleep, how much to sleep, down to the ounce, how much water I should drink. And I took that really seriously. And I think that helped me in my treatment, but it wasn't just me powering through cancer. There were other forces there that brought me to that point. And it took me a couple of years to do that. And so now, over the past 18 years... So it took me about two years to really contemplate because once I was healed and I went back to school the following semester and got back into sports, I mean, my life was kind of a blur for a couple of years there, just working hard, up early, to bed late, between study, traveling for sports, school, everything was just kept my life very busy. And mm -hmm. so things calmed down a little bit and I was able to think more about the other forces in my life that helped me work through that period of time between my doctors, my, my, my family, the, the fact that I was in New York in the best place I could possibly be for my treatment at the time. It just worked out really well that I was up there. We decided to stay. Uh, my relationship with my cousin, who at the time, I don't think I even realized how close we got, but he suffers from cystic fibrosis, which mm -hmm. is a, a chronic disease uh, respiratory, immune, and digestive disorder that really affects life. And life expectancy used to be, you know, not more than maybe 10 or 12 years old. Now he's 30 and thriving. But we were in a period of time in our life when he was, he's much younger than I am, where he was really struggling. They didn't know how long he'd be around. And then you take into account what happened to me. We spent a lot of time together. Basically, I lived at my uncle's house during this period of time. And I actually had him on an episode of my podcast and we were reminiscing. I didn't even almost realize until a couple months ago about how deep our relationship grew at that point. And he talked about how our parents kind of encouraged us to really kind of push each other in mm -hmm. indirectly. Like he would wake me up at 
6.30 in the morning because he wanted to play video games with his older cousin, Bobby, right? And <laughs> my thoughts at the time were, let me go to sleep. I mean, I'm in chemotherapy. I'm, like, dying over here. Like, quit waking me up, kid. But come to find out, my parents actually encouraged this because they wanted us to develop this relationship. And so that period of time from a mental and emotional perspective, my cousin was huge. I mean, I didn't think about it. I thought it was just, like I said, me powering through cancer. So when you ask about how I learned and what I learned from that period of time, it was that the things around me are super powerful. And if we have time, I have a, I have kind of one more story that I think is highly relevant to what you're, what you're asking. Please, please share. So now I'm two years out from where, from what happened and I started to think more about the things that were there. Like, like I talked about, like my cousin and the people around me, the doctors, the support, the support of my university and my teammates who were only my teammates for a couple of weeks, but I was treated so, so well by the coaching staff there and my teammates, all of those things. But I knew there was something more. Like I, I felt that, I just knew that there was kind of something else going on there. So my, my, my current wife, my, my only wife, my, my wife, I've been happily married to for almost 14 years now. Got to be careful how I word that. Was, uh, we, Indeed. Were talking, <laughs> we were talking before, this is before we were married, and we, we dated long distance. We actually met on a mission trip, and we, she was going to college at the time, in Chicago, originally from Michigan. I was from Florida and had moved back to for grad school to go to, to study broadcasting, as I mentioned before, at University of Miami. And we were all over the place. We ended up getting engaged and she was in China, student teaching, living with her sister. So our, our relationship was built on long distance conversations more than actually being together. And so one of the times we were having this conversation and it was late at night and we kind of got into this discussion about the exact story that I'm talking about. And I, we were talking about, okay, so I was kind of going through that time when I was 18 and she's like, yeah, I can only imagine if I knew you at that time, I was just in high school because she's a couple of years younger than me. Well, she started doing, she started telling us a story about when she was a junior in high school, her in the first semester there in the fall period of time, one of her teachers had talked to the class one of the first days of class early in the school year and said, well, one of the things that we're going to do periodically, uh, we're going to take some time during class period to pray for our future spouses. And Hmm. if you're a 16-year-old, 15-whatever boy or girl, you're like, okay, I'm not even thinking about getting married. Why are we we thinking about our future spouse? And and but the the teacher was like, no, I'm going to be consistent with this. I want to make sure that this is something that we're being mindful of. So they would they would do this. They would they would pray for their future spouse. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like you know, what a nice gesture. And then we kind of did the math and thought about it. But when she was in her fall semester of her junior high school, that's when I was in my freshman fall semester of college, and when I was going through my cancer treatment. Hmm. And we did the math and our, we just were like, our brains were blue. So our brains were like exploded in our, in there. And we found out that during that period of time that I was going through my treatment was when she was actually praying for me. Didn't know me, had no idea who I was, where I was. And she was support uplifting me in prayer. It was just an amazing moment there in my life. And I was like, bam, this is it. This is what I was thinking about hmm. previously 
that there's something else. There was another force at play there. Mm-hmm. And so the, there's a couple lessons to take from that. But one that I think is kind of unique is that some of the things that we have in life aren't tangible. Nikkei, like yeah. I have a really cool computer that I'm talking to you right now on this conversation. And it's pretty obvious to me that that's a nice thing that I have. It's, I can show it to people. I can touch it, feel it. It's obvious that that's something I should take care of. It's not an, it's an, it's an expensive device. I need to be, take care of it. But there's other things in life like relationships, people, uh, skills, blessings, cognitive abilities, uh, you know, places in life, communities that we're involved in that really aren't tangible that can be a little bit easier to kind of take for granted, to forget that we have them. And so that lesson is that we need to consider all of the things, not just the tangible things that we have in life and really take care of them as well. And my relationship with my wife is, is one of them. Incredible. Oh gosh. Um, where do we start? Um, <laughs> you said so much stewardship is a journey. It's important to practice it. Hard work isn't the only skill, you know, trying to embrace this concept of not just powering through, but appreciating and identifying other forces contributing to one's um, success. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us through how then did you start helping others with this stewardship? When did you start serving business families, family businesses, family offices and and the rest? Yes, I think. I think my, my, well, my first job out of college was working in radio, in sports radio, which I still love radio, I still love sports, but I got recruited into the, the financial industry and kind of put all that on a hiatus. And I stopped really using my communication skills and I started using more analytical skills. And I realized from early in my career, which that's about 12 plus years ago now, is when I really started to consider more how I could really help people with what I learned myself. I didn't consider myself a teacher. I felt like I kind of learned the lessons, but I just apply, tried to apply them as best as I could. But it took until I really started in my career in helping people with their, with their financial lives. But it wasn't formalized. It took me a very, very long time, probably almost a decade, to really start formalizing the process of doing that. And so in my career, in my previous employer, I started implementing some of those strategies in my conversations with families. Instead of just asking them about their net worth and their bottom line and their savings and their investments, I started asking them about their why. What is most important to them? What are the causes that they care about? What are the mm. things that make them feel that make them feel joy and fulfillment? That's incredible. It was really important to me. And then I'd say about four to five years ago now, I really started to write these things down and develop a process behind it. And then ultimately, my business partner and I started our, our firm called Initiate Impact. And that's when we really started to put it into action. When, when that organization was born, that became our main focus. We were no longer working for another employer who, by the way, no criticism to them whatsoever, but we had a role to fill and there were other things that we had to do. That was part of our job. So uh, while I love the mission of the organization, we ultimately felt that we wanted to focus primarily and specifically on that space. And so when Initiate Impact was born, 
that was when we were all in 100% on working with purpose-driven families. Incredible. And from your, your, your work, what do you find are the common challenges that your, your clients face? And based off that, how do you help them overcome those or any tips you might have? Sure. There, there's two things. One is, I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but we usually get two main cohorts of families or people that I think. And one of them is the family that that is looking for direction, trying to develop their mission and their purpose. They're very conscious about wanting it, but they're having a, some struggles trying to figure out what means the most to them. They're very, very well-intentioned. They just probably too many intentions, if you will. It's almost They're almost too altruistic. There's too many things that they want to do good for. And what I've found is that it's very, very hard, no matter how much influence, the size, the, the availability, just the privilege that a family may have, it's very, very hard to have multiple things that they really, really care about because you can't really concentrate your efforts in the best fashion. So those families, they're just, they, they need a little bit of help and direction. And so that work kind of goes back to the question before, what is your why? Mm. And the larger the family the harder it is to navigate this, but it's, and sometimes it can be the most rewarding and the most fulfilling because you have multiple members of the family, and I'm sure you've experienced this before too, and they all have different skills and gifts and purposes and things that they care about. So it really takes time. I mean, we're talking about months, maybe longer, to really work through with different members and different cohorts in, in one family to help them really figure out what does mean the most. And we ask a lot of deep questions about the things that they experience and what makes them feel good, how did it go? I think one of the best questions is, how does it make you feel? And that's one of my favorite questions to ask people about. And so hmm. that's one group of people. And so the, the tip I would give to that, those type of families of people is I would just, before I would take some time distraction free, not thinking about your business, not thinking about social media, not thinking about technology, television, Netflix, whatever it might be, shut all that stuff off and dedicate a couple hours just as some time to really, really think about the great things that have happened in your life and also the things that have really struggled, that have been a struggle, that have really made you feel bad and ask mm -hmm. yourself what's most important. That's the first thing I would do. A couple hours, it might seem like a long period of time, uh, but it doesn't come in five minutes. So that would be primary tip number one, just to get yourself started. The second group of people, families that I've, that, that we tend to resonate with and work really well are those that have a strong mission, immediate sense of urgency to attack, if you will, whatever that cause or mission is. And they come to us and they say, Bob, Stacy, we really believe strongly that this is important. And we want to make sure that our family can pass a continuous legacy on to future generations and that the mm -hmm. privileges, the benefits that our family has can be used to benefit this cause and this group of people. And we need your help with that. And with those type of people, we're not asking what's their why or what's their purpose because they've identified that. They know that they're very urgent with that. Those, those families, the next step is to decide what are the things that are distracting them from mm -hmm. getting to that point? Because they want to chase this dream, this cause, but there's a million other things going on and their lives are usually super complicated. And I found that it's some combination of three things. 
One is it is their business or their professional life, whatever it might be, is they spend a lot of time working on that. They really care about that too. So they have trouble stepping back. Mm. The second group of things is there are other professional situations in their life, uh, relationships that they have to take care of that take up a lot of time because th- there's necessities. There, are, Your family has uh, attorneys, your family has CPAs, your family has other professionals in their life that they have to talk with and they rely on a lot. So it's very hard for them to navigate all these extra things because it takes a lot of time to there's no quarterback, if you will, to go back to the American football. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no quarterback. There's They have all these great members of the team, but no one's coordinating all of them. And they're trying to run their business and their family and also do that. And then number three is they're just burnt out. I mean, they're just really <laughs> tired. And they they are smart enough. They're driven enough. There's a sense of urgency. They really care about those ca- that cause. But you can only do so much. The human body needs rest. The human body needs physical and mental rest. And they're not operating at peak efficiency. They're operating at 50, 60% efficiency because they're working so hard and because they are so driven. So a lot of times the solution there is just to take some time off, just to work Mm -hmm. less. And instead of being at 60% efficiency and spending 80 hours a week, what if you were at 90% efficiency at 60 hours a week or so, or 50 hours a week. Right. And it's just, you're more productive. You're more, you're able to be more efficient. And so those are the three types of things. And for those people, hopefully I provided a a quick tip on how to, how to combat some of those problems. You did. I was laughing whilst you were describing the first group because I was like, yep, that sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) Too altruistic. I was like, is there such a thing? Um, And yeah, it can be difficult. But your your point on starting with why is absolutely critical. Um, and not just like a surface level why, but going really deep and knowing what is that one thing or what is that one area that, you know, I feel a pull towards to want to make an impact. So so thank you. That's been really helpful. Interestingly, um, I had a guest on Chris Walkerly, um, Putnam Walkerly. She's the author of Delusional Altruism. Mm. And she speaks about, essentially in this book, she speaks about how givers can transform their giving to be more effective, about how a lot of um, givers and people in the impact space are driven by their need to help, but they can make quite irrational decisions. Mm. Um, they can come up from it from a place of like a scarcity mindset. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, her work, I find absolutely fascinating. So, so yeah, thank you so much. This has been incredible. And so what does working with you look like? And can you walk us through your process of how you engage families or, or sure. entrepreneurs? Mm-hmm. I, I like to think working with me is really fun, <laughs> hopefully for most people. <laughs> We try to develop a relationship with families. In our previous role that I mentioned, we, my team and I, we served 1,700 families. And it was a highly inefficient model, the way wow. it was originally set up. And so at, at a max point, we had six people on our team. And it was just, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. And once again, not to criticize that, that previous model was a different type of service. So now 
we want to be a mile deep and an inch wide. So when you ask how do we engage families, it's a very deep process. Like you said, it's not just why, but it's a deep version of why. Mm-hmm. And so when we engage families, we spend quite a bit of time up front just spending time together, mm-hmm. just having, just asking questions. It's a, a meeting. We, we're very virtual when it comes to a lot of the technical things that technical work that we do, we do because we're serving people that live all over the place. And so we can't meet in person, uh, mm-hmm. but we try to make, especially initially, we try to do in-person meetings and what the pandemic has created a problem here, but as things try to pa- start to pass, we want to actually, our, our best meetings are when we just go out to dinner or mm-hmm. we have a group meeting with the family and we just have, we do an activity. We do kind of a team building type of activity with a family just to spend some time together and get to know each other or what means most. Because it's great if I can ask you all these technical questions that will supposedly help you be as efficient as possible with taxes and legacy planning and investments. But I think it's way more important that I understand how you and your family operate and the dynamics there. So to engage with us is really to spend some quality time, first of all, and see if if we're, there's a good relation uh, but then if there is, we'll have a slightly more formal meeting with with the stakeholders of a family and spend mm. that time. I want to observe how you all interact together. I want you to to determine if you even like me. <laughs> right. I need you to know. I need you to know my where I'm coming from in my mindset. And then mm-hmm. once we take that time, then is when we start asking a little bit more detailed questions. And we get a feel for what it is that, that you mean the most. And I'm sure you know, in the family office world, DK, there's such a wide variety of tasks and things that need to, to get done. Yeah. Every family's different. Every family's different. So we need to know which of those items is most important to you before I dedicate more of your time and our team's time to that item. So we got to know that first. And then we lay out a schedule and a, and a responsibility chart. A chart that essentially says, okay, this is your responsibility. This is Bob's responsibility. This is Stacy's. And that way everyone knows who's in charge of what. And then mm-hmm. at any given time, a member of my team or the family, whatever, and we call them partnerships. So any member of the partnership can identify or get an answer to a question. They know where it is because mm-hmm. that chart says, all right, I go to Stacy if I have a question about this. Because it's not efficient if you have to call into our office or if you have to go searching around on the internet or pull up a, it's very, very, it should be very, very simple. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to get information. That way, maybe we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that item. We can just get you the answer. You can tell whoever it is that needs to know about it and we can move on to the next thing and make sure that the plan is continuously monitored. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and if anyone would like to get hold of you, Bob, how best can they reach you? If you want to reach me directly, the best place is anywhere on the social networks. It's at B-D-E-P-A, at B-D-E-P-A. I answer direct messages on Instagram, Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want information about the organization, Initiate Impact, just simply go to the website, initiateimpact.com. Thank you so much. It's been incredible having you on sharing your story sharing your perspective your insights Um, i really appreciate that
Awesome. Pleasure. I, I really love what you all are doing at your podcast here. And I got to get a hold of that book that you mentioned. That seems like a great read. So yes. I will check that out. Work in progress. Oh, sorry. Uh, you, delusional altruism. Yeah. Yeah. By Chris, by Chris Walker Lee Putnam. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, Nikki, for having me. Thank you. Take care. Wow. Wow. Um, Bob is a phenomenal storyteller, number one. Um, I love how he discovered his life passion for stewardship in a very unusual way and how he sees stewardship beyond just material things to people and gifts. I think my biggest takeaway from this conversation was when Bob was unpacking the common challenges business families face in trying to um, discover their purpose, right, um, in trying to develop their missions and purpose, which he mentioned that some families are too altruistic and are trying to pursue too many things that they care about at the same time. And he also mentioned another set of families that have distractions that are stopping them from achieving their purpose. I think this really speaks to the importance of clarity, clarity of purpose, um, oftentimes we, we, we can feel like there are many things that we should be pursuing, but that can come from a place of lack of clarity, um, lack of clarity of mission and vision, and lack of clarity of timing as well. And so it's really important that as families, we take time to reflect on what is our unique purpose at this point in time. And how are we supposed to achieve that purpose? For some, it might mean being an incubator of a foundation for a specific cause. For others, it might mean financially backing already established um, foundations and movements going on. For others, it might mean political change, seeking for um, changes in policy or regulation that will have a systemic um, industry-wide social positive change. And I think similarly, um, the second bucket of folks that have distractions for it might be, like he said, business, relationships, etc. I think it's important for us to understand that often we have to slow down to speed up and we need to leave margin and room in our lives as families, um, margin so that we can have the space mentally, emotionally, um, physically and in the calendar to actually move towards purpose. That really takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of discipline, and a lot of a lot of clarity, right? So I encourage you to really think through about how can you move closer towards clarity rather than confusion. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Take good care and God bless you. <laughs>